Hello, I'm Diana Thomas. And I'm Tom Harper. Welcome to That Will the Smith Show. A podcast about the historical, geographical, natural and human background to the world of Wilbur Smith. They stared in horror at the ruins of Fort Auspice. The windows had fallen in, the elegant verandas had collapsed. Trees thrust through the broken roof like giant hands tearing the building apart. Roots wormed through the walls and cracked them open. The whitewash that had sparkled with crushed shells was now black with soot, where part of the building had been set on fire. What has happened here? whispered Adam. Rob let out a deep groan. Dropping his cane, he ran towards the building trampling the weeds that sprouted in his grandmother's old flower beds, and in through the entrance. The termite mound was all that remained of the wooden doors that had graced the fort. He paused on the threshold. He was no stranger to carnage. He had seen the decks of a man of war after battle more times than he could count. But nothing had prepared him for this. This had been his home. Those stirring, dramatic words are taken from Nemesis, the most recent Wilbur Smith book, wonderfully co-authored by my brilliant host Tom Harper, she said, hoping he'll be just as complimentary about me. So Tom, where does Nemesis fit in the great Courtney sequence, which I guess now is the longest running family saga in in basically all of literary history? Uh, Yeah, and getting longer all the time. Uh, As you say, this book came out um, in April this year, 2023, um, and, and there are more to follow as well. So this is part of the project that Wilbur embarked upon before he died, um, in collaboration with me, to fill in the gap between Blue Horizon and When the Lion Feeds. So uh, regular listeners of the podcast will probably know, uh, When the Lion Feeds opens in uh, the late 1870s um, and introduced uh, Sean Courtney, uh, Garrick, and their father, Waite. Uh, living in a uh, farm uh, in the, uh, the the Tugela River Flats. Um, and then later, much later uh, in the 90s, Wilbur went back and wrote a prequel trilogy of uh, Birds of Prey, Monsoon and Blue Horizon. And Blue Horizon ends in the mid-1730s with um, James Courtney uh, and his son George uh, settling in a, the place they call Nativity Bay, uh, which in fact is is the location of modern day Durban, um, and settling down, uh, having had many adventures getting there, and we sort of leave them happily in this sort of Edenic paradise. That's really interesting. It had literally never struck me reading the book that Nativity Bay is Durban, um, but actually that's perfect because that is um, actually a really strong connection with both with both um, Wilbur Smith's own family life and the Courtney's family life and the importance of Durban in both those situations. And so the project that Wilbur and I were working on when he died was to take this Courtney story from the mid-1730s to the mid-1870s. So that's 140 years of history um, covering um, the entire intervening period. And the first book in that sequence was Ghostfire, which is in the 1750s. 
The second book was Stormtide, uh, which is in the 1770s. And this now is Nemesis, which uh, picks up the story another generation later. In Well, we start in the 1790s and go through to about 1807 or 1808. Except that you start in two different places at once. So let's begin with the one that is historically furthest back, which is uh, the 1790s. And the very dramatic scene of the beheading of Constance Courtney, as she was, witnessed, oh dear, spoiler alert, but it's right at the beginning of the book, witnessed by her son, Paul. So Paul's story is going to be one of the main threads through Nemesis. But tell, tell us about a little bit more about Constance and about her son. Yeah, so Constance is a character we first meet in Ghostfire when she's a, uh, I think just on the cusp of being a teenage girl uh, in Madras uh, in India. And her, fa- her father is uh, Mansur Courtney, uh, originally Dorian Courtney from, um, from Monsoon and from Blue Horizon. And she and her brother Theo are orphaned early on in Ghostfire. And they, uh, through a series of misadventures, become separated. And Constance is falls into the hands of the French and is taken back to France, uh, where she makes her way through the French aristocracy uh, with some fairly bad experiences, but become, through force of circumstances, forced to make herself a sort of black widow, um, sort of mar- almost like an Ava Perone type figure who, who progressively works her way through the ranks of the French aristocracy finding kind of more and more high status men uh, because she needs to survive in, in this very unforgiving world that has uh, that has been incredibly hard on her um she then so she establishes herself uh, at the heart of the the french kind of ancien regime uh, aristocracy uh she has a son who she has great hopes of who becomes a great naval commander um and he features in Stormtide. um Spoiler alert, he's no longer around by the time we get to uh, the opening of Nemesis. But of course, the opening of Nemesis is, in a sense, the uh, ironic end to Constance's progress through the French aristocracy because she has reached the summit. You know, she's a friend of Marie Antoinette. She's a regular at Versailles. And then suddenly that isn't really where you want to be because the French Revolution breaks out. And she goes from this absolute star in the firmament of the French government to this hated, reviled uh, figurehead of the Ancien Regime. And in this opening chapter, we see her you know, meeting the end at the, at the guillotine that, uh, that happened to the, uh, the, let's say, the stalwarts of the French aristocracy. Indeed, and she's being witnessed. Her death is being witnessed by her son, her young son, I suppose, what, teenage son at that point, Paul. And, and, and he has basically been told by her survive at all costs whatever you do just survive do whatever it takes to survive and so one extraordinary thread of of this book is really about his incredible ability to survive in a series of extraordinary circumstances tell us about the other thread which picks up the another line of the courtneys because by this point the kind of family tree is is kind of like a gigantic spreading oak. They're just all over the place. So there's another um, thread of the Courtney family who who are going to occupy the other thread of the book. So tell us about them. 
Yes. So this is, I guess, what you think of as what I think of certainly is almost the the main line of the Courtney's. So yeah. broadly, there is a line that is going to go more or less from um, Tom and uh, Jim from from Blue Horizon uh, down to Wait and Sean uh, in When the Lion Feeds. And so the descendants of Jim Courtney are really what I think of as kind of the main line of the Courtney's because they that's been the, the, the sequence of generations in the prequel trilogy that Wilbur wrote. And so th- we now have Rob Courtney, who is, he's the hero of Stormtide, and he is the grandson of Jim Courtney. And Rob's son, um, so we're now kind of into the third or fourth generation after um, Wilbur's um, original prequel trilogy uh rob's son is called adam courtney um rob has become a great uh admiral um in the in the british navy because this is the the period of the napoleonic wars and he has risen from um from a deckhand all the way to the very heights of the navy Uh, some would say second only to nelson some would say even greater than nelson Uh, and his son uh adam who's in his early 20s is is, as we open this book um, is, has followed his father's um, in his father's career. Has been was born at sea, raised at sea, entered the navy as soon as he possibly could, uh, and is a young captain who's just been given his first command. Uh, and as we open, uh, they are, which is uh, early 1806, They have been sent with a fleet uh, and a um, an army to capture Cape Town. So I guess the question is. Who is Cape Town being taken from and why do the British want to take it? Um, Well, Cape Town is being taken from the Dutch, but it's really being taken from the French. Um, And it's worth pointing out this is actually the second time in the Napoleonic Wars the British take it because they take it once um, and then there's a peace and they give it back. And then war breaks out again and they decide they need it back again. Um, And what's happened is in Europe, Napoleon has invaded Holland. Um, the Netherlands, and he's uh, abolished the Netherlands because that's the sort of thing he does. Uh, and he's created something called the Batavian Republic, uh, which is basically a French puppet state. Uh, so and so they are now the colonial masters of Cape Town, uh, and it's obviously absolutely intolerable for the British to have the uh, the, the base at, Cape, at the Cape of Good Hope controlled by Napoleon's sort of quizzling government. So they decide to, to capture it. Uh, and they, so they said, this is this is all historically true. They send uh, a sort of an expeditionary force, uh, army and navy. Um, they land an army uh, and they fight a battle called the Battle of Blauberg, where they uh, defeat the the Dutch defenders, who it has to be said are probably outnumbered uh, and outgunned, uh, and they capture Cape Town. It's not a huge engagement. It's not a massive. Um, moment in the wars but for the British it's absolutely essential that they control the route around the Cape of Good Hope because obviously that is their supply route to India. One of the things that we were aiming to capture with this whole sequence of books is just how interconnected the world is and how um, in this great period of expansion and trade and imperialism uh, and exploration that you know the, the tea that is thrown into Boston Harbour in the American Revolution has come from India um, around the Cape of Good Hope via Britain. And the taxes that, uh, that the British government have charged on that are helping to fund the war effort in the, you know, the American Revolution and then later in the Napoleonic Wars. So 
the whole global economic system um, is, you know, up and running in this period. Uh, and the Courtney's is this great sort of mercantile trading uh, maritime family, I think, are, are really uh, right in the middle of it. So, so yeah, so the British have to protect India. Of course, Napoleon's invasion of Egypt, part of the reason for that is he wants to get to India because he sees that as Britain's great kind of economic base. So to cut a long story short, that's, that's, that's why the British are going to Cape Town, because they need to control the route to India. And I guess the reason why you put the Courtney's into Cape Town, A, because they're kind of going to a place which I think is vaguely mentioned. They sort of built in the very first place, if you, if you go right back to Birds of Prey, those Courtney's who helped build the kind of the fort at Cape Town. Um, yes, and uh, I think one of the joys you, you mentioned at the beginning that you know the Courtney's is one of the longest running, uh, the longest running family saga, um, and that's one of the joys of, of working in this world is that there are these places that become touchstones, like Egypt, um, but Cape Town um, maybe more than any other, where you know Francis Courtney, you know his blood is is sort of basic somewhere in the cement of the the stones holding together Cape Town Castle. That's literally, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's died there. Um, and then in in this book, you know, it's uh, his descendants who are recapturing it from the Dutch. Um, and, and there are scenes in, in the castle there. So that was a lovely um, way to be able to kind of tie things together. And of course, it offers you as a writer the chance to do something to a Courtney early in the book, which forces another Courtney to take action. Um, but we better not say it, because there have been so many spoilers already, but exactly who it is who's, um, whose problem causes the other person's actions. But you know, for, for, so it's like a Newtonian law of, 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 of literature. For, for, for every problem, there's an equal and opposite assertion. I don't know. So you have these two time threads. So you have Paul, whose timeline begins in 1794, I think. And you have Adam, whose timeline begins in 1806. So they're 12 years apart. Yeah. And these two timelines continue kind of in parallel. What was it that made you think? I mean, it's a really interesting way of writing a book. And and I know from having done it myself that it can really help to have one thing bouncing off another and creating tensions and and links that you, the reader thinks must be there between the two timelines. At the same time, it does cause both the writer and the reader kind of... <laughs> it's, 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 it's more complicated than just telling a story from A to B. So... Wait to see what made you decide to do that sort of two two level story on one level it was trying to work out how i could write about or how we could write about the things that we wanted to cover uh, and there are two things in particular uh, that stuck out and one was the uh, napoleon's invasion of egypt in 1797-1798 and the other was the, the British capture of Cape Town in 1806. And so some of it was just a response to the logical problems of how do you find a story that covers those very diff geographically different places and also those very, uh, that, that kind of span of years. But the moment you start thinking about it, you realise that uh, there's actually, I mean, I've always loved kind of the, the intricate kind of puzzle box type novels um, where things fit together in, in really uh, not complicated ways, but intricate ways. Uh, and and I, as in, in my previous career, uh, I'd written a number of kind of time slip novels 
um, sort of like people have read Labyrinth by Kate Moss, where there's a historic story um, set in the past and then a, a present day story that's interacting or in dialogue with that historic story in some way, often revolving around kind of an artifact or a, um, some kind of secret that's hidden in the first story and uncovered in the second story. Um, so I, I've done a few of those and I, I really love that as a form. So so having that experience and I saw a way in which you could have these two stories that they dovetail, the, the end of one is almost the beginning of the other. Um, and so that by the time you finish the first story, it explains what's happened in the second story. Um, and that kind of gradually revealing the information in that way, I, I, I really appealed to me. I, I think I think one of the things which I always say to people when they ask about writing is that so much creativity, it's not just kind of random imagination. It's exactly what you're talking about. It's, it's you have a problem to solve. Yeah. You know, it's, for example, how am I going to get my characters into this or that place at the right time? For the thing I want to happen to happen, and it all makes sense, and it's all logical. And and the other thing about the timelines is, of course, that Wilbur has sort of done this before, but in two separate books. Yeah. So you have River God, which end, or which which culminates in in the kind of creation of tombs for the Pharaoh Mamos and also for for Tanis the general, and then you have the Seventh Scroll set in the present day. So you know three and a half thousand years after the events in, in River God, in which present day archaeologists go in search of the things that were left behind in the previous book. And so essentially what's happened now is that you, both those things are happening in one book. Although one of the expectations when you have a, a double storyline, it's a bit like having, you know, the, the man and the girl in a romance. And they, they, they're kind of, you know, they have to get together in the end and the whole thing is, and usually... The, the, the two stories in, in the kind of thing you're describing. You say one resolves the other, or they mutually resolve one another. And that actually does happen in Nemesis in the blink of an eye. I mean, all you get as the resolution is a few lines. If that, I mean, there's just probably like one sentence which goes, you go, oh, okay. Wondering how that was going to happen. I mean, when you did that, was that, I, mean, I can imagine sort of having a sort of quiet smirk on my face as a sort of, Okay, I get fooled at this time. Well, like, I mean, you don't, you, in other words, the book has a very fascinating and interesting and satisfying and also intriguing because it makes you want to know more kind of ending. But you don't give away the whole thing. That, that again, must have been a deliberate choice. Yeah, I, definitely. I think you're always really conscious of wanting to stay one step ahead of the reader and wanting uh, to take the reader to surprising places i mean this this is why people love wilbur right because um you know you never know where the story is going to go um and i the challenge if you've got these kind of two interleaved stories particularly ones which are um reasonably close in time is that i think the moment as a reader you start reading it you're thinking well how is this going to connect um and you're going to start forming ideas about how it's going to connect and, and how it might link up and so and, and because you know, in a sense, where it's going to end, because you know, because the, the second story has already told you what the kind of end state of the first story is going to be, um, 
you have to find a way of disguising that or, or, and uh, muddying the waters a bit so that it's not just really, you haven't given away the ending of, of, of the first story, you know, in the first chapter of the second story. Um, and so, yeah, we spend a lot of time thinking about how you do that in a way which is kind of dramatically satisfying um, and, and plausible and coherent. But at the same time, the reader won't see coming as they read the 250 odd pages of Paul's story they won't necessarily know how it's going to end, even though they will know some of the circumstances in which it will end. And even if you think you've figured out, which I think I did, kind of what the connection is, you still don't know how it's actually going to be resolved and, and how it was resolved yeah. took me completely by surprise. Ah, excellent. I remember once being a friend of mine who was, who was a stand-up comedian and and. You would tell him the funniest joke and he would he would never laugh, but he'd say, Oh, that was a professional smile I gave you. Like, yeah, good joke. Yeah. And I had a kind of professional smile and I was like, oh yeah. I like it. Yeah, I'll take that. Um, but also one of the other things that it has in this in Nemesis is, and I don't think this is too much to spoil, a really and I won't but I would say which one it is, which name it is, but there is a Courtney in this book who is an absolute 24-carat, USD-approved, ocean-going, weapons-grade, awful, nasty, baddie. I mean, a proper Wilbur Smith baddie. Bad, bad, bad to the bone. Yep. How do you set about... I mean, I suppose if you're writing a real Courtney baddie, they have to be as rotten as the good Courtney's are heroic. Yeah. Must have been a lot of fun though, having having a Courtney who's who was who was just thoroughly bad. Oh yeah, and I mean the, the the old line that the devil has all the best tunes is is completely yeah, true, yeah. and I think I'm sure you find the same. Um, you know, when we talk about your book, um, <laughs> there are some pretty horrific villains in there too. Um, yeah, I think they are Courtneys. I have villains, but no Courtney villains. There's one Courtney villain actually uh, in an earlier book, but 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 I haven't had the chance to really do a proper Courtney. Villain, yeah. Really. The, the way I the way we approach that is very much that you take a look at the characteristics that make the Courtney's heroic. As you, as you say, the the villain has to be as villainous as 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 the the Courtney heroes are heroic. Um, but I think they have to be villainous in quite specific ways as well. Um, so they have to be villainous in ways which are almost the the mirror of of the or, or sort of the dark. The dark version, um, like like the upside down version of, um, of of the Courtney traits. So you know the Courtneys are very single minded, but you know where, at what point does single mindedness become ruthless? Ruthlessness. Um, you know the Courtneys are always amassing tremendous treasures, but okay, the way you do that is important, and actually the point at which you then start amassing power and treasure for its own sake um, again tips you over into villainy. Um, you know, and they, they, the Courtney's have this charisma, this tremendous charisma. Um, and again, the, uh, but, and I think Hugo, the, the, uh, our, our antagonist, has, has, has that too. Uh, and of course, um, the other thing, uh, which I think is really important, he has daddy issues. Uh, because, and, and this, is, this, is, this is kind of one of the real themes of the book, is that all, it's all which is, I mean, it's not the theme of this book. It's the theme of the vast majority, I think, of Wilbur's books because it's such a timeless, universal theme. And you're going right back to where the lion feeds, it's all about, you know, children and their parents, and particularly fathers and sons. 
Um, so in the same way that when the lion feeds is Sean um, really trying to come to terms with how do you become a man in the shadow of a, a man's man like Wade Courtney. Um, so in this one, you've got Paul who is guided by what his mother has told him about how he has to survive. I'm trying to think, does he, do we even know in the book who his father was? Does he know? Uh, his yeah, his father was this French nobleman um, who, who constantly... He does know. Yeah, he knows who his father was. But his, but his father, he, he's very much a mummy's boy. Yes, Paul. but he doesn't know that Constance Courtney, what, what that actually kind of means, the fact that she was... Yeah, he, no, he, he's, he's um, as far as he knows, she's French. Um, he only has a vague inkling of, of her kind of Courtney history. Um, so he's very... He's, his fate is kind of governed by his relationship with his mother. Uh, yeah. Adam is he's got the super heroic father as i say the the a sort of sailor who is more nelson than nelson um and so it's how and, he, and he's chosen to follow him into the same profession so it's how do you does that weigh on him uh as he tries to make his way in the world and then uh hugo the, the antagonist also has had an incredibly powerful um, high achieving father and there's a scene actually where, where you see the statue of his father in in the middle of Calcutta yes. because he's been one of the great kind of conquerors of India and again but also a bad we, we sort of learn isn't he I mean he's not he's not he's it's the rotten side of the family because isn't he a bit of a rotten egg too yes yeah yeah that that whole branch I mean this it all goes back ultimately to um to monsoon where you've got the two brothers Tom and Guy uh, twin brothers I think um and and Tom is the um, sort of noble, virtuous one, and Guy is the um, weak-willed one who, who progressively, whose flaws gradually manifest themselves um, more and more until he becomes the, the outright villain of Blue Horizon. Um, and so they're descended from Guy's, the um, Hugo's branch of the family descended from Guy's side, and Adams uh, descend from Tom's side, and it really this is like the the duality that descends right the way through the um, the, the family tree. The other thing that's kind of interesting about Nemesis is that you you well, one of the things is that you place Paul at one point. Paul, I think I can say this. He he makes a very interesting journey at one point. We're going to come to Egypt in a second, but he makes a journey which is very very iconically. Wilbur Smithian, mm. because he makes the journey down the Nile, past the cataracts, into, I guess, um, Sudan and Ethiopia, as it would now be, yeah. not then. Yeah. And he ends up in Ethiopia. And, and, and he's forced or obliged while he's there to, to do something really, really, really terrible, to, to take on a job which kind of robs him really of any moral standing at all and 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 makes him do things which are unforgivable yeah um so the things which interest me about that was a the kind of peril of putting your protagonist in a situation where as it were unlike quotes unquote a true courtney they they don't just yeah, they'd rather die than do such a thing. But of course, he has his mother's words, you have to survive, you have to survive, you have to survive. And then something happens to him, which I don't think we should say what it is, but he's kind of punished for that in a way. It's sort of a sort of a lifelong punishment. Yeah. 
and I wondered how conscious that sense was. Well, if I've if I've put him, if I've made him do these terrible things, he kind of has to pay a price for that. Or, or was that not a connection? I don't know. Am I reading too much into that? Uh, that's a really interesting question. I don't think I had made that connection, but you're right; it completely works. Um, that what befalls him that was something in the moment um this was uh, yeah a section that i've been working on um and it sort of it was it was literally one of those things where the story kind of takes over yeah yeah i know that feeling and and you suddenly realize that the terrible horrific thing that you, the place you really don't want to go as 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 an author is actually the place that you have to go um and again if you're writing with wilbur you know that the more dramatic and the more outrageous and the more squirm-inducing in the reader kind of place is absolutely the place that you have to go. And I think I don't know if you found this, Dan. It's, it's interesting, as, as you said that, the answer is yes. But also, and in fact, we'll come to that in, in books. That I can I can think of specific instances in books that I've done with Wilbur that 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 sort of applied. But it hadn't occurred to me until you just said it, that the particular choice you made made your job as a writer much, much, much harder. Yeah, yeah. And so far as one of the things that a character has to be able to do <laughs> can't be done anymore, and it makes a writer's job very, very difficult. But anyway, let's get away from all this kind of um, um, giving away of, of, of secrets and, and place ourselves back. And I'm going to talk about Egypt for a bit, because, of course, that is... Egypt is one of the central kind of themes in all the Wilbur's work, and it goes right from River God right through to, I mean, depictions of Cairo in, in wartime and afterwards in the War Cry trilogy. Um, so you've gone to a point in Egypt's history which is very, very interesting. It's the um, arrival of Napoleon and his forces, the young Napoleon, charismatic Napoleon, um, still... Not yet an emperor, I don't think. No, he's not even in control of the government, I think. Right. He's just this brilliant superstar field marshal general. Yeah, I mean, he. I think this is, I believe this is the period of the directory where he is almost like a triumvirate um, that are ruling France, and he is one of three. But uh, he is by far the most brilliant, obviously. And he, he arrives in Egypt, um, sort of the turn of the... Um, 18th and 19th centuries, the very beginning. Yeah, 1798, yeah. And of course, this was in real in, in reality the period at which, for example, well, he took a, he was very interesting because he went on a military expedition but took with him um, historians, archaeologists, all sorts of intellectuals so as to record the wonders of Egypt and really made the first serious survey of the antiquities of Egypt. And of course, during that time, the Rosetta of Stone was found, which enabled the translation of, of, of hieroglyphs. Yeah. Um, but I mean, as you were writing it, were you kind of thinking of this as being sort of somewhat as in dialogue with other depictions of Egypt at other times within the kind of canon of Wilbur's work? Yeah, yeah, I, I, very, that was very conscious. Um, and, and one of the reasons I was really keen to do it. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd read River God, I loved River God. Um, I was always secretly hoping that they'd ring me up and ask me to work on one of the Egyptian uh, novels as a co-writer, which which they never did. Oh, well. <laughs> um, so, but th- I never got that call. So, uh, so this was my my next best best opportunity. Um, but I was really con- I, working on this. I, I had a copy of River God on my desk. That's interesting. And 
the there's a bit where Paul visits a temple, um, and as much as I could, that's the the idea you, you should get from that is that that's the temple that Taita had built, the great funerary temple oh, that he's designed wow. and built. Um, uh, I hadn't made that connection. Um, to, oh, that's really that's really interesting. To to create that uh, that kind of link, and then obviously, as, as as you said, the the journey he then goes on, kind of further and further and further south, is exactly the same journey, you know, down into Ethiopia, the headwaters of the Nile. Um, that's exactly the same journey that Taita makes um, in the second half of River God, and, and it sort of also plays forward as well as backward, forward towards the journey. Um, that is made in the seventh seal, also down into that same yeah. part of Ethiopia, which is where this terrible thing, which we, I don't think we can specify, happens to, <laughs> to Paul. But, reader, it's worth reading it just to find out. And and what then does Nemesis... I mean, Nemesis is, is, is literally a doom-laden word. Yeah. And there's quite a lot of Nemesis in this, actually. Mm, yeah. Because it's quite a... It is a, it's a story whose motivation, it turns out, for both Paul and Adam is revenge. Yeah. They're both driven in the end, which is a very, very dark, motivating thing. In a, in a funny sort of way, not entirely heroic, but powerful, very powerful. So, so which plays into the word nemesis. But... What's the specific relevance of Nemesis in the context of the book? Funny enough, when we were going through the editorial notes, one one of the uh, the comments that came back from the editors was like, "Who is the Nemesis?" Um, and uh, which was actually, I mean, it's, it sounds the way I say it, it sounds um, kind of like they're being pedantic and a bit thick. But actually, it was a really insightful. It was the it was the right question to ask, um, and it really got me thinking and sort of unlocked some things in the edit. Um, I think there's. This, this is this sort of couple things to unpick. One is that um, Wilbur ends Blue Horizon with the Courtney's in situ in Nativity Bay, which is modern day Durban. Nicely settled. They've got this amazing fort they've built. They've, they're friendly with all the local people. Um, they've really, it's, it's, it's a happy ending, spoiler. Um, and then 140 years later, the Courtney's are in their uh, farm, Thunis Kral, uh, in, uh, on the banks of the Tugela River, uh, which is probably, I don't know, probably about 100 kilometres from, from Durban, maybe not that much. So in 140 years, the Courtney's have gone 140, 100 kilometres. Um, and so right from the very beginning of, of doing the sequence to connect those two blocks of books, we knew that there was going to have to come a point. You'd have to wrench the Courtenays out of Nativity Bay uh, and take them, you know, quite a distance away, um, so that it wasn't just a matter of, you know, one year they hitched up their wagons, drove for four days, and 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 then settled in a farm somewhere else. That was clearly insufficiently epic. I think that would be for the Wilbur Cannons. Yeah, that 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 was never going to cut it with Wilbur, was it? So um... no, no. And so this book was. I think, I think the title "Nice Short Drive." Can't see that. Can't can't see that on a on a book. <laughs> yeah, maybe may, may eventually we'll do the, uh, the 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 alternative version, which will be a short story about a pleasant wagon drive through through the sunshine. 
we could maybe we could do the maybe we could have in 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 the in the manner of our times the nice cozy offense free all the words taken out version <laughs> of Wilbur Smith's story, which are tremendously nice stories about really kind people who, yeah. who don't ever harm a fly at any point and. And I think it's better for the present day, don't you? There'll be a publisher who'll say that sooner or later. Yeah, and the, ch- the children skip along beside the carts and uh, chase butterflies and pick flowers. Yeah. Exactly. Well, flowers and yes. hello flowers, hello trees. Yes. This is not that book. No, no, this is absolutely not that book at all. So, yeah, in the knowledge that uh, this was going to be, that at some point the Courtney's would have to be sort of wrenched out of uh, Fort Auspice, which is their, their home they built. Oh boy, they? are they wrenched. Boy, oh boy, are they wrenched. And so the uh, the extract I read at the beginning uh, is when Rob and Adam, our two naval heroes, come home, having been away fighting the Napoleonic Wars for a long time. They come home to Fort Auspice and it's been completely destroyed um, and everyone is dead, basically. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> That's more like it. See, that's that's what we expect from a Wilbur Smith book. Every, it's been completely destroyed and everybody's dead. Splendid. Good starting point. Yeah, that's 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 yeah. I think and it, so. So everything in the book hinges. That's why that's why I chose that extract to read because everything in the book hinges on that event. In a sense, and in fact, of the whole sequence of books connecting Blue Horizon and When the Lion Feeds, that's in a to my mind, that's kind of the ground zero. Um, everything that's happened. It, leads into that and everything that happens afterwards springs from that um so i we knew that this was going to be the the absolute kind of crux moment of, of the series um and and then so so to come back to your question about the, about the nemesis i wanted there i wanted to explore the ways in which the kind of lives they lead have repercussions and they're not always positive repercussions and so they the uh, the the kind of the, the you know, like the good line of Courtney's Tom Tom and uh, Jim's line um, have tremendous success, but they also make a lot of enemies along the way, and, and you know, and there will be moments when that comes back to bite you. Sure. Um, and then, and then of course the question is, well, what do you do about it? Um, and what Adam decides to do about it is, I must avenge my family's honor. And and you're right, revenge is a very dark and dangerous um, emotion um, and motivation. Yeah. Not least because it, it 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 tends to be it tends to be infectious. One you know it's like it's, it, the, the revenge pres- continues from generation to generation because you create a new revenge when you satisfy a first. In other words, you kill one person. You know it's, it's like a sort of mafia sense of of, yeah. of revenge that, that that then the person who's related to the person you've just killed wants to kill you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, you know it just carries on forever. It's like a awful daisy chain. Yeah, um, and th- there has been an element of that in the preceding Courtney books, where this feud that really begins with with Tom and Guy in uh, Monsoon and Blue Horizon um, has kind of redounded through the generations, and so yeah, it was kind of taking that to its logical endpoint, and then once you've taken it to its logical endpoint, then you sort of well, what happens after that? Uh, so so, and really looking at the kind of and. Yeah, to kind of taking the Courtney's to some dark places and seeing what do they do in those situations uh, where the demands of honour um, really clash with the demands of humanity. Um, and, you know, to what extent do you fight for your family against actually doing, 
you know, what might be right uh, kind of morally. So it was really about exploring all of those ideas. And it's very interesting because well, right at the end of the, of the book, that exploration and the kind of the thoughts we've just been discussing kind of become explicit. I mean, very economically expressed. But but Adam is forced to confront the idea sort of, you know, is this really such a good idea? This fact that I'm just completely, yeah. you know, what price am I going to pay? What price you know, to my soul, but also to my future and to, you know, to the family and everything. Yeah. Um, it ends, the book ends, with that, what I would say is a sort of hopeful resolution for Adam, a really interesting one of those non-resolutions for Paul that makes you want to know what the resolution mm. is subsequently going to be. Um, at this point, I mean, do you yet have a route map in your head of how you're going to get from where those characters are now to where they have to be in 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 whatever it is, 1879? You know, on that farm, I mean, is is it kind of is the is the path kind of not specific, but roughly sketched out in your mind, or is or are you someone who's for whom it's just going to, as you say, the story sometimes tells itself that over time, that path will become clear, even if it isn't now. It's a mix. So um, going back five or six years now, Wilbur and I had sat down and mapped out a, a plan for the whole sequence, um, and so and this is. It was originally mapped out as a three book sequence. Sorry, as a five book sequence. I think it's actually grown because the story was was bigger than, um, than it looked when you jot it down on the, in an outline. Um, yeah. Um, so there is a there is a plan. Um, I say that I'd worked on with Wilbur, um, and I think a lot of the broad outlines of that will follow through. But at the same time. Um, some things happen that do just take you by surprise. And I think Paul is an example of a character. I'm sure there was a version of the outline at one point um, where, you know, he didn't necessarily survive the book. Um, and actually you get to the end of the book and you realise that that can't be the ending. Um, so, for example, he's someone who didn't have a big future mapped out beyond this book, but actually I think now will come back and play a part. Isn't that funny that some characters who you think should probably die, end up living. Yeah. And other characters who everybody assumes are going to live, you think, nope, sorry, love, for the good of the series, you've just got to go. <laughs> it does yeah. sometimes happen like that. But yeah. you find yourself thinking, did I just do that? Yeah. Like, you know, and then people call you up and say, did you just do that? You know, it's just, just, just seen the draft. <laughs> what the actual dot, dot, dot. But, but that's because... Things take on their own logic yeah. and characters take yeah. on their own logic. And I also think it's incredibly pretentious when people say, oh, I can hear my characters talking to me or they just write themselves. But actually, that is what it's like. There's a point where it's almost like kind of automatic writing where a character, you just find yourself taking a character in a particular direction because that's just the direction they have to go. And you haven't anticipated that at all, but it becomes evident to you. Yeah. I'm quite curious now. And, and as, as you said earlier, as you said earlier, with, with with what happens to Paul, you know as you're doing it that this is going to be um, making your life much, much harder. Because yes, actually, the, the economical quickest way to get to the end is to have them do something different, probably less dramatic. Um, but but as you, as you say, yeah, I, I'm completely with you. I've, I've 
always kind of roll my eyes when authors talk about oh the characters are like real people to me um but actually the characters are like real people to me. yeah there, there are moments definitely where they tell you what what needs to happen to them yeah um and for me those moments are the most fun bits in writing yeah i did i know this is a little kind of quick author tip here but one of the things i sometimes do if i'm stuck is I just get two characters talking to another, and I'll just write dialogue. As as I, as, and so often, once I've kind of got into the spirit of it, into the groove of it, once I just start having these two people talking to one another, bit, bah, 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 bah. no descriptions, no, no kind of. It's just literally like you're writing a play. It's just literally the lines. Oh wow! And and very very often, one of them will say something which had, I had totally not anticipated and which yeah. can either just make a single scene and think, oh, yeah, of course, that's how it has to go. And sometimes, as with the thing that happens to Paul, transforms the entire book. Yeah. It's just like, oh, I had literally not worked out what that char- who that character really was. But once I've got them talking, it becomes obvious who they are and what their motivations are and what their, you know, all those things that actors talk about. And again, you think, oh, that's pretentious nonsense. <laughs> no, actually it matters. Yeah. <laughs> Motivation really matters, you know. Yeah. What I'm like really matters. And and for me, that's that's just like the it's when it's when things take flight like that. And, and you sort of feel it's not even you, it's just somehow it's just coming. That that is the thing which actually makes writing kind of worthwhile. Yeah, no, completely. Those those are the the real highs. And of course, I think it's worth pointing out that um, you know when Wilbur wrote his books, um, the, the books he wrote um, himself, the majority of them, um, he was never planning. So in a sense, he was being taken by surprise by the characters, presumably every day. Oh yeah, uh, because because famously he didn't outline, he didn't plan, he he just wrote and took him where the story where where the story took him. He actually said to me once that he only he 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 finished his work halfway through a sentence and all he knew was how he was going to end the sentence yeah every day so the end of the end of the writing day you're halfway through the sentence and yeah <laughs> come back tomorrow morning you follow up from the word and yeah and that's kind of an extreme way of doing it but like and i remember at the time i hadn't really started writing fiction at that point as, as a journalist um and i thought well, that's very interesting and 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 I actually kind of used that as a little tip when I first started writing writing um, fiction and thrillers and stuff. <laughs> yeah. When I think that's about all we've got time for this week, but having discussed the importance of Egypt in Wilbur's work and indeed River God specifically, what better thing could we possibly do than talk about the book itself? So join us next time for the beginning of a series of shows based around River God and Egypt. And in the meantime, it's goodbye from me, Diana Thomas. And it's goodbye from me, Tom Harper. Smith's show is produced by Christopher Wynn. Music by Dewey Delay.